Father, thank you for your word. Uh, this is such a challenging book to get through, but in it uh, we see you and we see your people and we even see ourselves. And uh, would you help us to process that and understand that and uh, would you help us to move forward through it and from it uh, to a much better place which you take your people after this book. And so thank you for the truth of this book and for the truth particularly about you uh, that we can learn uh, even from these uh, different people and events uh, so many thousands of years ago. We thank you and we love you and we pray for our time tonight, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, book of Judges. Uh, last week we started talking about the downward spiral, see, downward spiral, the downward spiral of the book of Judges. So if you're our guest tonight, I try to put one word or a couple of words, sometimes it's a short phrase, on each book, just to give you kind of an overview of what I think the book is about. And Judges is about a downward spiral, and if you had a chance to read chapters 9 through 21, uh, you will definitely agree with me that there was a downward spiral in the book of Judges. So, as I started thinking about um, compromise, because last week we started about talking about compromise, um, in fact, tonight I want to talk about the status quo of compromise, pointing to the whiteboard, the status quo of compromise. Uh, let me start this way. I know a man, and some of you are going to think, oh, he's talking about me. I'm not talking about anyone in this room. So this is a disclaimer. If you hear yourself in here, that's not my problem. <laughs> but this is, has to do with no one in this room. Uh, I know a man living an immoral lifestyle. It happens when he travels. And as a result of compromising with the Canaanites in his man's soul, up until recently he's been dull to hear, dead to change, and enslaved by his sin. Except for him saying he's a Christian, there's really very little differentiating him from those who don't know Christ around him. And he seems to be okay with that. I know another man who struggles with great insecurities. I don't know how or why he's that way, but sometimes it's even hard to carry on a conversation with him because he's too this or not good enough that. Because of compromising with the Canaanites in his man's soul, he's been dull to hear, dead to change, and enslaved to the lies he hears in his own mind. And he seems to be okay with this. You think, oh my gosh, those are horrible. Glad we're not talking about me. Or maybe it's just one of the more respectable sins. <laughs> Let me just flip it at random. Uh, hmm. Oh, here's one lack of self control. Yeah. Uh, 
judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, and related sins, the sins of the tongue, worldliness. Maybe it's a respectable sin, and perhaps you or I have become dull to hear, dead to change, and enslaved to the lies or rationalizations we tell ourselves about those respectable sins. And we seem to be okay with this. The status quo of compromise begins with a new normal, a divided heart, which we saw last week. But the status quo keeps dropping. And from a divided heart, dullness begins to set in, spiritual dullness. What follows dullness there's a new normal established after a while of being dull, a new normal, and I become deadened. After that, I keep on persisting in that divided heart. Dullness gives way to deadness. Deadness gives way to enslavement. And we can seem to be okay with this. Shouldn't surprise us. This is hmm, almost 3,000 years old. <laughs> What's been happening to God's people? This very thing. It began even before the book of Judges, but we see it fleshed out physically in a picture in the book of Judges. They never meant to get to that point as we talked about last week, but that's where they went. They started, when they went into the land, they were so excited, God had brought them up out of Egypt to the promised land. This is his promise, I'm going to give this to you. First generation said, thank you very much, we don't want it. Second generation said, we do want it. They press into it and they begin to take it, possess it, but they don't possess it all. It started even after good resolutions to take it at the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua passes off the scene to new leadership. They have a great start in the book of Judges. But the conquest from the beginning of the book were told they couldn't take this, they didn't defeat that, on and on and on and on. And so the, the book is set up around the incomplete conquest and what that does to the nation as a result. I don't know, maybe it became too hard for them. Maybe it was taking too long. Maybe it just no longer seemed worth the effort. But by the time that second generation goes away, the new generation comes on the scene that didn't know God and didn't follow his ways. And their hearts that were divided between Yahweh and idols is what took root in Israel, in the nation, and in the nation's heart. So we 
aren't very far into the book of Judges and we've got people with divided hearts, I can hold a place for Yahweh and I can hold a place for this idol. I can hold some room in my heart for both of them. We watched last week as that little sequence began to work its way out through some of the um, uh, tenures of the different judges. We're going to see it continue to work its way out as the years go on and work its way out in even more horrible and horrific ways than it did at the first part of the book of Judges. You think, it can't get worse from here. Oh, gosh, it gets worse in the book of Judges. It goes from bad to worse. It started off because they said, I can give Yahweh part of my heart and I can give an idol another part of my heart and I can be okay with this. I can balance it. Truth is, no one can balance that. We learned from them that that's just a downward, the beginning of a downward spiral. Their divided hearts turn into a gradual drop in their spiritual temperature. They began to be satisfied with what they had rather than what God had promised them, and all because it started off with compromise, with a divided heart. I can hold room for both of these two things. And I suggested to you last week that it's a slippery slope from living with the Canaanites to living like the Canaanites. And so tonight we're going to continue to flesh out the status quo of compromise. Do you know what status quo is? It's the existing state of affairs. Okay, so status quo of body temperature, 98.6. Right? That's the status quo of a body temperature. A spiritual status quo might be, while I'm sure things could be better, it just isn't that bad. That's a spiritual status quo. While I'm sure things could be better, Bill, things can always be better. True? (laughs) But that's not the part of the sentence that you really want to focus on. Bill, I'm sure things could be better, spiritually speaking, for me. But what I've got isn't too bad, and I'm not too unhappy with it. So I don't really think I want to do anything about it, and I'm okay with that. That's where the temperature is dropping, 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 from a divided heart to spiritual dullness, eventually to spiritual deadness, finally to enslavement. There's actually two that come underneath that, which we'll talk about shortly. But in those days, they started living with the Canaanites because they couldn't drive them out of the promised land. And living with the Canaanites began to look very, very similar to living like the Canaanites. By the end of the book of Judges, they are full-on Canaanite. So the status quo of compromise. Israel faced it. We might face it too. Twelve judges, at least. There could even be more. It just sort of depends on how you count them. 
But the living with the Canaanites, there were these 12. There's also some people think there were seven. And if you were able to do your reading tonight, you might say, well, there's even more than 12. There could be like 16 or 18 of them. I'll grant you all that. It's hard to figure out exactly how many judges there were. But these 12, everyone pretty well agrees on. The seven, everybody agrees on. And there could be a few more. But the point of that is Israel is now living with the Canaanites. They can't drive them out because the Canaanites want to stay more than the Israelites want to drive them out. So the Canaanites are staying. They're not leaving. They're not going anywhere. And so what happens? These cycles go through the book of Judges. So the Israelites do evil in the Lord's sight. And so that's, that's bad. And so the spiral starts around. The spiral starts around. So the Lord hands them over. He allows them to be oppressed by their enemies. And that occurs for some period of years. Finally, Israel gets to the place where they say, we can't take it anymore. And what do they do? They repent and they give up their idols. And God takes pity on them. He says that he takes pity on their misery. And so he steps in and he sends a judge. He sends a deliverer to help them who brings them to a place of freedom again under, uh, in a tribal sense, not in a national sense, but in a tribal sense. Um, these different judges deliver different tribes, different areas, different regions of Israel for some period of time. And then guess what happens when things get good again? <laughs> you know, you go, oh my goodness, I, I'm learning my lesson and God delivers me. Oh, man, things are so good. I'm just going to start sinning again. And how long does it have to go? It has to go a long time. And finally, I cry out to the Lord. He raises up someone else, and that lasts for a while. Things stay pretty good. And then after a while, you see what's happening? Where does it begin? A divided heart. What happens Watch this. What happens here? It's not when times are bad that they go south. It's when times are good that they go south. Why? Because here, well, what do they have to do here? They have to depend on the Lord, right? They have no alternative all they can do is cry out to the Lord, Lord, help us, help us. <laughs> the Lord helps them. What do they do? Thank you. They turn right back around and they start doing what it was they were doing before. And it just takes a while. And then they go right back down into it. Caution. Right? Israel. Caution. Caution. When times are good, that's when you got to watch out. Not when times are bad, when times are good. Mm. I had a professor who used to say, in the Psalms it says, Selah, S-E-L-A-H. In the Psalms, you read through the Psalms, and every once in a while it says Selah, and you go, 
Hmm, wonder what that means. Well, it means stop and think about it. So I tell you, when times are good is when you got to watch out. Sila. Stop and think about it. Be careful. Danger, Will Robinson. When times are good is when we're most at risk. Crazy. Living with the Canaanites, they begin to live like the Canaanites. And these cycles go around and around and around and around and around. And you would think finally Israel would learn. Guess what? They didn't. If you finish the book of Judges, how does it end? In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did that which was right in his own mind. Now, wait a minute. I thought relativism was a new thing. Oh, it really isn't. Huh. Isn't that strange? <laughs> Maybe it's a condition of the human heart. I don't know. Call me crazy. I think relativism has been around for a long, long time. And what happens when everyone does that which is right in their own mind? Everyone sets their own rules. Everyone picks their own God. Everyone does that which is right in their own mind. And you can't condemn me or call me out for anything because that's, that's good for you. That's not good for me. Oh, man. Okay, we're not, we're not talking about that tonight. Anyway, that would be a great thing to talk about. They start living with the Canaanites. They start living like the Canaanites. And instead of fighting them, did you notice this? If you had a chance to read these, did you notice that instead of fighting the Canaanites really anymore, they're just, why can't we all get along? We love living next to you. Don't you love living next to us? Let's just all be friends. This book is a lot closer to our day than you might like to think. Careful now. We've already had a great sermon today, so I'm not going to be preaching, but I could start preaching. They start living like the Canaanites. Why can't we all just get along? But living with the Canaanites inevitably becomes living like the Canaanites. Even people who made good resolutions start living like the Canaanites. How about Abimelech? Abimelech, what an interesting guy. Gideon, remember the story from Gideon last week? Gideon returns home. He has 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. Chapter 8, verse 31. He also had a concubine in Shechem who gave birth to a son whom he named Abimelech. Gideon dies. Israel goes south. One day, Gideon's son Abimelech went to Shechem to visit his uncles, his mother's brothers. He said to them and the rest of his mother's family, Ask the leading citizens of Shechem whether they want to be ruled by all 70 of Gideon's sons or by one man. And remember that I am your own flesh and blood. Gosh, that sounds like somebody's given me the answer. It's not really a question. Sounds like someone's given me an answer. So he's able to hire, they're able to hire some scoundrels who for 70 coins, probably one coin per son, they find all 70 of Gideon's sons and they execute them. But one gets away, named Jotham, and he runs away and hides. Well, Abimelech takes over. Doesn't go so well for him eventually. Uh, 
Finally, a woman does him in by dropping a millstone on his head. But he asks his young armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me. Don't let it be said that a woman killed Abimelech. <laughs> so the young man ran him through with his sword and he died. <laughs> Abimelech became God of his own life and selfish ambition took him over. And dullness not only settled into Abimelech, but began to settle into the warp and the woof of Israel. There's a dullness. Compromise has removed the conviction to be concerned or the courage to take a stand. And so the status quo... ...drops down a level. Now this is the new status quo in Israel. Dullness. Division has led me to dullness. Oh, it doesn't get any better. How about Jephthah? Jephthah, what an interesting fella. Uh, I have to say this, Hebrews 11.32, Jephthah is in the hall of faith. Would I have put him there? No, but I am not God. Why did God choose to put him there? Because he seems to have been a man of faith who did some thoughtless things. Uh, Jephthah becomes Israel's judge after Tola and Jair. So Jephthah becomes the judge in chapter 11. Uh, at that time, verse 29, at that time the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he went throughout the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mizpah in Gilead, and from there he led an army against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So Jephthah goes out and he has victory. When he returns home, his daughter comes out to meet him, playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried out, you have completely destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me, for I've made a vow to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. She says... Father, if you've made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you have vowed, for the Lord has given you great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. But first let me do this one thing. Let me go up and roam in the hills and weep with my friends for two months because I will die a virgin. And he tells her to go. When she returns, he fulfills the vow. He's in the hall of faith. He did not have to fulfill this vow. There was a way to buy back your vow. He had to pay 20%, but he could have bought her back. He still could have done what he intended. He would have had to pay 20%. He did not have to do what he did. It's terrible. Jephthah, he's a man of faith. He seems to be rash, and perhaps he bargained with God. God, if you'll give me victory, I'll sacrifice to you the first thing I see when I get home. What's happened in Israel? Deadness 
is beginning to set in. Compromise provided the illusion of comfortable living, yet led to a seared conscience and a decaying character where he thought this was okay. He didn't have to do this, but he thought this was okay. And so what's happening? A new status quo. A new normal in Israel. Division is given way to deadness. Deadness, sorry, dullness. Dullness is now given way to deadness. Okay, who's next? Oh, oh, I love this story. This is such a crazy story. Chapter 13, Samson. This is not your Sunday school, Samson. (laughs) This Samson uh, has a very interesting birth. Very interesting birth. Um... I've even read some, guys, some commentators who think, and it, I don't know yet, uh, who think there is a pretty strong parallel between Mary and Samson's mother. That it's perhaps supernatural the way this child comes on the scene. Because they can't have children. And she's all of a sudden got a child. Jesus being our greater Samson, not in any immoral way, but as the strong victor. Interesting how Samson's birth comes about. They recognize from birth this is going to be a very special child. Verse 24, when her son was born, she named him Samson, and the Lord blessed him as he grew up. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he lived in Mahana Dan, which is located, which means Camp of Dan, which is located between the towns of Zorah and Eshtaal. Chapter 14, one day when Samson was in Timnah, so he's probably 20-something, probably early 20s, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. (laughs) Won't be the last one. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. (laughs) His father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry, they asked? Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Trust me, we don't talk, tell this part of the story in Sunday school. <laughs> His father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. So the parents go to see what they can do about it. Uh, a lion jumps out at them and he tears its jaws apart with his bare hands. Kind of a common, ordinary, everyday experience there. Uh, But he doesn't tell his mother or father about it. (laughs) They must have been walking some distance apart. I think I might have heard the roar behind me and (sighs) whatever that would sound like. And now there's this lion laying dead. So they must have been some distance apart. 
Samson arrived. Uh, he talked with the woman and was very pleased with her. Uh, later, he goes back for the wedding, and he decides to go back and look at the carcass of the lion. Inside, he finds a swarm of bees. Uh, had, had made some honey in the carcass, so he scoops some of it out into his hands and ate it along the way. He's just defiled himself as a Nazarite. He doesn't get to do this. But he doesn't care. He, yeah, he just doesn't care. Uh, so then anyway, uh, he gives some to his father and mother and they ate it, but he didn't tell them where he'd gotten it from. They make the final arrangements for the marriage. Samson throws a party. There's some clothes and robes at issue here. I'll give you 30 or you'll give me 30. I'm going to tell you a riddle if you can solve it. His fiance uh, doesn't want her townsfolk to be uh, made sport of or to become poor. And then they, uh, verse 15, actually just, just before that, three days later when they were still trying to figure it out, the riddle, on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to explain the riddle for us or we will burn down your father's house with you in it. Huh. I think I might be telling him the answer to the riddle. Did you invite us to this party just to make us poor? So Samson's wife came to him in tears and said, you don't love me, you hate me. You have given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. And he says, I haven't told it to anybody. Uh, so she cried whenever she was with him and kept it up for the rest of the celebration. At last, on the seventh day, he told her the answer because she was tormenting him with her nagging. <laughs> this is a mature man. So they give him the answer. He's not terribly happy about it. Uh, he goes and he kills 30 men. He takes their belongings and he gives their clothing to the 30 guys who'd solved the problem, solved the riddle. And then the father gives the girl to the best man. Again, we don't tell this part in Sunday school. Later on, Samson takes a young goat. I'm going to go in my wife's room and sleep with her. <laughs> but her father wouldn't let her in, let him in. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> I truly thought you must hate her, her father explained. So I gave her in marriage to your best man. You know, take her sister instead. Samson said, this time I cannot be blamed for everything I'm going to do to you Philistines. He catches 300 foxes. He ties them together in pairs. He puts torches in their tails, and he lets them run through the dry grain. It burns down all of their crops. Who did this, the Philistines demanded. Samson! <laughs> oh, gee. So he attacks the Philistines because they're upset with him. Then he lives at a cave. Men of Judah go down to get him, and they tie him up. That doesn't work. Uh, he kills a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey. Now he throws the jawbone away. Now he's thirsty and he cries out to the Lord and the Lord causes water to gush out of a hollow in the ground at Lehi. And Samson was revived as he drank. Chapter 16, one day Samson went to the Philistine town of Gaza and he spent the night with a prostitute. <laughs> Remember, judges are not picked for their spiritual maturity. Remember I told you that last week, what is a judge? Well, let me tell you what he isn't. He's not necessarily a mature person. 
So this is what he does. Word soon spread that Samson was there. So the men of Gaza gather together. They wait. They keep quiet. When the light of morning comes, we'll kill him. But he stays only until midnight. He gets up. He takes a hold of the doors in the town gate, including the two posts, and lifted them up, bar and all. He put them on his shoulders and carried them all the way to the top of the hill across from Hebron. Sometime later, he falls in love with a woman named Delilah. Uh, They want her to entice him to tell why he's so strong. And so we go through this little story, and three times he makes something up to her. They come in to capture him, and he wreaks havoc. Finally, verse 16, another little recurring phrase here. Uh, Well, starting in 15. Chapter 16, verse 15. Then Delilah pouted. How can you tell me I love you when you don't share your secrets with me? You've made fun of me three times now, and you still haven't told me what makes you so strong. She tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Finally, Samson shares his secret with her. My hair has never been cut. For I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as anyone else. So she cuts his hair. This is one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible, uh, the end of verse 20 of chapter 16. She cries out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. So the Philistines captured him and gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza where he was bound with bronze chains and forced to grind grain in the prison. Funny little foreshadowing, verse 22. You would think they might have kept track of one thing, the Philistines. (laughs) You would have thought, we got the secret, but no, verse 22, but before long, his hair began to grow back. You're going, okay, maybe, we're, maybe Samson's not done here. So they have this huge festival. There's 3,000 men and women on the roof who are watching Samson do some things, and he puts his hand on the pillars, and he pushes them, and the whole thing collapses on himself. And it says, so he killed more people when he died than, when, uh, than he had during his entire lifetime. And his brothers and other relatives finally go and get his body. Samson, what a complicated man. Uh, and, but God used him powerfully to deliver his people from their enemies. Samson was a deliverer who couldn't deliver himself. A conqueror who couldn't conquer himself. A strong man who didn't know his own weakness. A man who lived to please himself, not God. He allowed a woman, at least one, to entice him, control him, and then betray him. Enslavement, compromising with sin, eventually had a blinding, binding, and grinding result. Little asterisk, that is a quotation from Warren Wiersbe. Great quote. A a compromising with sin eventually had a blinding, binding, and grinding result. And the status quo in Israel has gone down again. 
The Danites. We're not finished with the book of Judges. Chapter 17, crazy stuff happens. Remember, the tribe of Dan doesn't like their plot of land they've been allocated. And they try to get it, but they can't really get it, and so they really don't have any place to live, and they finally get fed up with that, and so now they're going to go find a home. They're not going to go what, where, to where God has told them to go and where God has promised to give them victory. They're going to go make it happen on their own. Chapter 18. Now in those days, Israel had no king. Another recurring theme at the end of the book of Judges because we're being set up for an earthly king. Because eventually they're going to say, we don't want Yahweh, we don't want God to be our king anymore. We want a human king like everyone else has. Now in those days, Israel had no king. And the tribe of Dan was trying to find a place where they could settle, for they had not yet moved into the land assigned to them when the land was divided among the tribes of Israel. And so they go on this journey, and they find a very peace-loving town, and they burn it down, and they take it over, and they rebuild it. The Danites, they call evil good, and they call wrong right. There is rampant idolatry going on in the tribe of Dan. Remember Micah? You know, and he... Did you get this about Micah if you had a chance to read these chapters? Right? The mother, someone has stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from her. Now, I'm going to say that's probably a lot of money. And remember then, Micah kind of, <laughs> he comes shuffling in one day. Oh, hey, Mom, I heard you called down a curse on the person who took the 1,100 pieces of silver. Yeah, well, that was me. And you have in your mind that this is like a 13-year-old boy. You know, this, this rascal, and he's come in and he's done this thing. Well, he confesses, and the mother says, well, bless you, I'm going to make an idol out of this. I'm going to make an idol out of this. And Micah says, hey, great idea. I'll make one of my sons to be the priest. This is an older man who has stolen from his mother. This is not good. I'm to honor my father and mother. What's happening to one of the basic tenets of what's holding Israel together? The fabric of the family is being ripped through this story of the Danites. Rampant idolatry. They left their inheritance for greener pastures, in quotes. They lived their own lives on their own terms under their own authority. They had dissatisfaction. So enslavement now has given way to dissatisfaction. Compromise led to dissatisfaction with God's word and God's will. And then they take matters into their own hands. Underneath here, dissatisfaction. And the spiritual temperature of the status quo drops again. Now Israel is dissatisfied with God's word and God's will. 
It started off with a simple division. I can hold a place for Yahweh, and I can hold a place for idols, and I can make this work. I can balance it. What sets in? Dullness, deadness, enslavement, dissatisfaction with God's word and God's will. The Danites are out of their minds. They are so uh, out of control. Israel is spiraling. The Benjamites, you think, finally, the Benjamites. This is good. They're just north of Judah. Somebody's going to come and help us here. No. Now, in those days, Israel had no king. Chapter 19, verse 1. There's a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim. One day, he brings home a woman from Bethlehem to be his concubine. She becomes angry with him, and she returns to her father's home in Bethlehem. After four months, what? That's crazy. Crazy guy here. He finally sets out to speak personally to her and to persuade her to come back. And he takes some stuff with him. Her father urges him to stay, and they, you know, I guess they're trying to patch things up. Finally, he's exasperated, and he leaves. He leaves late in the day. And so he's going to get to a town that he's not familiar with. It's not really an Israelite town. It's the town of Jebus. But they're not going to stay there. They're going to go on to Gibeah, a town in the land of Benjamin. So they stop there to spend the night. That was not a good idea. They spend the night there. Horrible, horrible things happen. Uh, the fella gets back home. Uh, and he decides it's time to send a message to Israel. And so he does that in a very strange, gruesome way. The whole nation now, as one man, rises up against the town, against the tribe of Benjamin. And what do they do? Basically, they wipe them out. There are 600 men left in the tribe of Benjamin. They're able to find wives for 400 of them from Jabesh Gilead because they didn't actually come and make the pledge. But they're still short 200 women. So they say, well, you know, there's this festival going on over there. <laughs> I'm not sure we know anything about it. There's this festival going on over there, and there's a lot of women over there. And if you ran through the bushes and grabbed one and let's just call it kidnap, you kind of take her on back to your place. We can find wives for the other two. What? Are you reading that you're just going, what? What has happened to this place? What has happened to Israel? Now they're okay with kidnapping. Just go grab those girls. Well, it was done that way in those days. It's called kidnapping. They took 200 girls, likely against their will, to be wives for these other 200 Benjamites. <sighs> They're grossly immoral and wicked. They're supremely self-confident. They're unashamedly self-reliant. They're arrogantly unrepentant. For them, the end justified the means. They have moved now into defiance. 
Habitual compromise made them indistinguishable from the Canaanites around them. And the spiritual temperature in Israel has dropped again. What started off, I can do this, I can hold a place in my heart for, the, for Yahweh and an idol. Look what happened to God's people thousands of years ago. There's nothing new under the sun. This is what happened to them. And oh, by the way, what tribe is Saul from? You might want to make a note of that. Where's the first king come from? What kind of background does that rascal have from his tribe? Probably not a good choice. But there we are. The Benjamites end the book of the Judges... And it ends with this statement. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. You're left with, oh my goodness, what has happened to Israel in just a few hundred years? They've gone from a great, godly people who's moving into the promised land to this, that in these days Israel had no king and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And it's played out for us how far they fell. Downward spiral of compromise. The slow leak of compromise made God's people become increasingly dull toward pursuing holiness Increasingly dead toward pursuing change, increasingly enslaved by sin, and increasingly dissatisfied with and defiant toward God's word and God's will. And so, bit by bit, Israel became less and less different from the Canaanites around them. They never meant to get here. But here they are. And it all started with compromise. It's a slippery slope from living with the Canaanites, quote-unquote, to living like the Canaanites, quote-unquote, in our day. The same status quo of compromise can impact us just like it impacted Israel. Are you living at status quo? Do you feel dull or insensitive? You feel or sense a low urgency toward holiness? Do you feel dead toward pursuing change? Do you feel enslaved to some particular sin, however small? 
Have you become dissatisfied and defiant toward God's word and God's will? You've become a Frank Sinatra Christian. I did it my way. And there's no longer much difference between you and the Canaanites around you. However small or respectable those sins might be, as a for example, living at status quo, if you struggle with, let's say, anger, and you say, you know, I know it could be better. It's just not that bad right now. I'll change later when it gets worse. What am I doing? Yeah, I know. I know. Mm. I'm a little dull to it. What's next? Become dead to it and just go, you know what, I'm not, I'm not any worse than anyone else. I know some of this sounds familiar to you. Some of you are nodding your head like, I know my neighbor. I know that person sitting right across the table from me, and that's what he or she is doing. Right? Pretty soon, that sin begins to control me. I'm not in control of it. Dissatisfied and defiant. You know, I know what God's Word says, but it probably doesn't mean that. It probably means something else. That's just what you think it means, preacher. It's not what it really means. I read somebody who says this is what it means. Oh, what? <laughs> Are you living at status quo? And am I? Let me ask you a more pertinent question. Where is God at work in your heart today? Your heart. Where does God work at your heart today? Because the heart of this issue is an issue of your heart. The heart of this issue is an issue of your heart and mine too. What does God still desire? He's still looking for servants, looking for men and women who, like Othniel, will obey his word and walk in his spirit's power for good. He's still looking for servants, like Ehud, who will go out of their way to do the dirty work no one sees for the sake of God's people. Like Deborah and Barak, he doesn't want to go it alone, but they give themselves to his service so that God's people might be set free. God is still looking for servants like this today. He has not changed in what he's looking for. He's still looking for servants, for men and women who, like Tola and Jair, don't need the recognition and affirmation of men, but only the recognition and affirmation of their God, and they get in the game. He's still looking for servants like Gideon, who will say yes to him in spite of knowing they have weaknesses, fears, or think they have nothing to offer. And he's still looking for servants like Samson, though at the end of life, give themselves away to turn squander into victory. 
This is what God is still looking for. This has not changed. What is God doing in your heart? The heart of this issue is an issue of your heart. What is God doing in your heart? Do you know this? Psalm 103, verse 10. He has not treated us as our sins deserve, nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. If you're looking to memorize scripture, that's a great one to start with. He has not treated us as our sins deserve. Is that true in the book of Judges? Oh my gosh, he took pity on their misery and he intervened again and again and again and again and again. And you say, well, I'm not as bad as those folks. You know what? Maybe so. What does that say about God intervening in your life? (laughs) If he'll do that for them, what might he do for you? He's not treated us as our sins deserve, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Do you remember how he revealed himself to Moses when Moses said, who are you? And he said, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is who God says he is. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And we spent quite a few weeks walking through Romans 5 through 8. What is God doing in your heart tonight? Because the issue is a matter of your heart. It's a matter of your heart. And where is your heart in relationship to your God? His expectations haven't changed. They're the same. Sometimes I need to be reminded through a picture, which is worth a thousand words, of what my daddy is really like to spark me. You understand what I'm saying? Raise my spiritual temperature a little bit. Get my heart going again. I shouldn't need that, but I do. Here's your daddy. Keep your eye on this fella in... He's in the blue, right in front of the guy with the green shorts. This is at the Barcelona Games in 1992. He's running the race. There he is. He just pulled a hamstring. Okay? Can you imagine? You've trained your whole life for this. There's your chance. Here goes the finish. You know, yay to the victor. What does this guy do? (laughs) He's going to get across the finish line. He can't do any more than hobble. He's going to get across the finish line. He starts slowing down because he can't make it. This fella runs up to him. Oh, by the way, that's his daddy. What does his daddy do? Oh.
<laughs> He's like, leave me alone. Get away from me. <laughs> and you know what he's going to do? He's going to walk them across the finish line. They're going to make it together. They're going to make it across the finish line. The Christian life is a race. But after a while, some feel like they're just running in circles. Others get wounded in the race some way, somehow. Others who haven't made much progress or who feel as if they've disqualified themselves walk to the sidelines and drop out of the race perhaps even thinking God is disappointed in them. But it's at that moment when you know you can't finish the race without help, if at all, that your daddy, who's been coming down from the grandstands, puts your arm over his shoulder and walks you across the finish line, even if all you can do is hobble over Daddy's got you, and he's going to walk you across that finish line. The race has never been about how far you can get by yourself. Rather, it's about how far your daddy and you can go. It took that guy pulling his hamstring to realize, I can't cross the finish line by myself. Have you come to that point? You were never made to cross the finish line by yourself. You might pull a hamstring. You might trip. Somebody may knock you out of the race. It doesn't matter. How are you going to respond to this? Is your spiritual thermometer at status quo? Will you continue to live at the level of the Canaanites or at the level of your God? Are you satisfied with what you have or do you want what God has promised you? Where do you need to stop compromising with the Canaanites beginning this week? And will you make yourself unreservedly available to God this week for His purposes? It doesn't matter how far you've run the race so far. It doesn't matter how wounded you are. It doesn't matter that you think you've disqualified yourself somehow. All that matters is that you get back in the race tonight. Lean your full weight on your heavenly Father and start walking or hobbling, if that's all you can do, toward what he's promised you, not what you have or what you think you deserve. Press on. And press on this week in him. For next time, read the four chapters of Ruth. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you 
you are just like that young man's daddy. And when we cry out in pain or frustration or anguish, or when somebody knocks us out of the race or whatever, you come down and you say, lean on me. I've got you. I understand. I've walked this before, and I'll walk it with you. And in my arms, we will cross the finish line. I love you. We love you too. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for you. And pray that this week would be the best week we've had yet as followers of Christ. We look to you and ask you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.